Is water a right or a commodity? What international rules govern the use of water and what roles do the IMF and World Bank play in structuring of the world's water supply? Professor Karen Piper's book, The Price of Thirst, Global Water Inequality and the Coming Chaos, discusses these issues as the culmination of seven years of investigative research. Her book paints a serious picture about the current situation, and her ideas are an important contribution to the debate. My name's Craig Barfoot, and you're listening to Pod Academy. Karen Piper, thank you very much for taking the time to have a chat with me today. Thanks for having me. We, we currently hear a lot about the, the world's water crisis, but at the beginning, can you maybe help me out a little bit about, just about the science of it? Uh, because, I mean, there must be the same amount of water on the earth as there was 500 years ago. So where is the problem? Um, yeah, scientists like to say that there's the same amount of water on the earth as during the time of the dinosaurs and that we are literally drinking the same water that the dinosaurs drank. And so there's the, the problem is not that water is disappearing. There's, the problem is that we don't have enough clean water. So if you look at the planet, it's like over 70% of the planet is uh, made of water but less than 1% of that water is fresh. And then the question is, what are we doing to that fresh water? So the water problems we're having today have to do with pollution a lot, um, but also with climate change, which is moving where water is, and then also uh, groundwater over extraction. Like we're draining these fossil aquifers that have taken like thousands of years to accumulate. And so those won't come back. And so we're, we're getting an increase now in salt water because of all of these things, but a decrease in clean, drinkable water. I'm interested in the international rules govern, governing water use. I mean, what's, what international water cooperation is there? What international bodies sort of, yeah, do they have international rules? <laughs> uh, that's an actually, yeah, they, they do, but they, they don't work for the benefit of protecting water. They work against protecting clean water. So, for instance, you have the WTO, and that treats water as a World Trade Organization, which treats water as a commodity. So, their main rule regarding water is that you should be able to trade it. And so you can't have reg national regulations pr protecting your water supplies. And this has become an enormous issue in Canada because right now there are a lot of corporations from the United States wanting to tap, um, from all over the world, wanting to tap into Canada's water supplies. And Canada doesn't want that to happen. But right now, this is another you know, international organization is NAFTA, which is saying that we need to allow free trade. And so they're, they're trying to fight that um, right now, and we'll see what happens with that. Now there's a, a new regulation at the UN that is a good one, um, that is, they, the UN has declared water as a human right. Um, and what that means is yet to be seen. But uh, essentially, now if water is not supplied in an adequate level to people, um, those people can sue. 
and demand that it be, you know, that the government supply water to people. And, you know, we'll see if that actually happens. You know, people are already doing this all over the world. And because it's a very new uh, resolution at the UN, we haven't quite seen the results of it yet. I think when when you were talking about this, uh, you were mentioning in your book uh, and something that gave me really a new perspective on the, the Arab Spring uprisings. Focusing on Egypt, I mean, at the time we hear, we heard and hear a lot about the social media revolution, but underreported was that this country, Egypt, was in a water or is in, in a water crisis. Yes. And so I, uh, first I wrote an article for a journal called Places about the Egyptian revolution that in which my thesis was that it was really about water supplies because basically Mubarak, and this is one of the big problems with privatization, is that it's uh, Mubarak used privatization as an excuse to gift water to all of his friends, land and water. And they developed these enormous suburban, luxurious housing projects in the desert and brought water out to them. Meanwhile, and and started selling water to Saudi Arabia, you know, whatever they could to, to make money in these ridiculous schemes. And meanwhile, people in Cairo were, didn't even have a public water supply. So because they were, they were um, settling in these informal settlements and basically had to jerry-rig their own water systems with dirty water to drink. So yeah, that's, um, that's what I see as water poverty. And I say that this contributed to the revolution. And now, you know, there's been, if you watch the Middle East now, there's been like spin-off effects all over the place. Uh, one of the issues that I've been watching is ISIS because in my book I talk about Iraq and the water problems and I sort of predicted that with Turkey cutting off the water supply to Iraq and Syria that you're going to see major unrest there. And What, what sure, happened in Turkey? Turkey um, has built a, an enormous dam complex called GAP, the Greater Antolia Project. And they have been uh, gradually filling those dams up. And as they do, they're cutting off the water supply to Syria and to Iraq. And there's two main rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, that flow into those countries and that are their only source of water. And so, you know, I talked to a Turkish water minister at the World Water Forum about this, and I, was, I said, you know, what's going to happen when you cut off their water? And and he was basically said something like, who cares? It's our water. You know, what's going to happen? I ask you what's going to happen. And I said, well, they'll die. And he's, he laughed at me like that was ridiculous. He's, Nobody dies of thirst in Iraq. But just the other day I read the news and it was about a family who literally they had their, their infant daughter, they had to let die because there wasn't enough water for the entire family. And so as Turkey's cutting off the water supply, and they're supported by the World Bank and by the IMF to do this and have been promoted in doing this, they're causing unrest. And sure enough, ISIS now is saying one of their main goals is to regain control of the Euphrates and the Tigris. And if they have to take over Istanbul to do it, they will. Is there a recognition from the U.S. that this is a problem or that is there a recognition from the world that this is a problem or will be a problem? No. Um, and that's what I find the most disturbing is that nobody's 
talking about this. Now, I went to a, a World Water Forum meeting where the water minister from Iraq and uh, Turkey was there, and uh, they, you know, nearly got into a fist fight over it. You know, it's it's a huge problem. But the World Bank and the U.S. are supporting what Turkey is doing with damming that water and not really addressing the the consequences of it, which to me is is baffling. But, you know, again, it's like the World Bank is providing loans and they want those loans back and they support development. Turkey's only doing this, you know, so they can have more money. They want to develop their more marginal lands uh, for growing cotton and things like that. You know, it's, it's really hurting people and causing conflict. The, the World Commission for Dams said that the World Bank should not support projects that cause international conflict. The World Bank replied and said, well, that's not really our place to make those decisions. We don't want to interfere with what governments decide. And so they basically are saying, you know, we will fund projects that create international conflicts and, you know, we don't care. So, yes, it's very, I I do hope people start talking more about what's going on there with the the water, with the gap development in Turkey. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, was quite naive about it until this conversation. But it, it seems ludicrous. I mean, it's, it's not as if there are enough problems already in, in Iraq uh, without, yeah. without this to add to things. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when I was there, even, um, uh, the my guide was talking about one of the rivers disappearing and I asked him why and he said, oh, Turkey probably cut it off, you know, and, and, and they don't really know, you know, they don't, there, there isn't much cooperation between the countries about what's going on. Turkey believes that uh, the water is theirs because it's on their property and that Iraq has the oil and Turkey has the water and they can trade if they want. So, you know, basically right now, Iraq is is buying bottled water supplied by Turkey, but not everybody can afford bottled water. So the poor people are still drinking dirty water and and some people are dying of thirst. You would think there would be international laws about damming uh, between countries and uh, downstream countries having particular international rights regarding access to water. There are, they're, they're not laws, they're agreements. There are international agreements, but they are interpreted differently often by um, the different countries, and there's no enforcement of those agreements. So uh, that's, a, that's a big problem. You know, there is an agreement, Turkey has agreement that they have to supply a certain amount of water to Iraq, but Iraq is saying they're not doing that. So, and and then Turkey will go back and say, well, you know, the water's ours, period. You're, you're very, very critical of the IMF in your book. Yes. And if, if possible, can you, can you explain why it is that you are so critical? Uh, I'm critical of the IMF because of the conditions that they have placed on development for countries. And I'm critical of those conditions, basically. So one of those conditions is privatizing water supplies. And so, uh, you know, actually, there's all kinds of problems. But um, privatizing water supplies, they are forcing countries that, that 
don't have money to repay their loans to sell off their water utilities. And um, so, do you mean and, that this is in, in terms of a of a development loan that, yes, in order to receive yes. this loan, then then they have to privatize their water. Yes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the World Bank does the same thing, and those are called conditionalities on loans. So they place a condition on a loan that says you have to uh, sell this water supply to a private corporation. And then what happens in developing countries is that the corporation comes in, as in Johannesburg, and what they want is to get customers to pay. And so they're going to come in and try to force poor people in townships, in suburbs, in Johannesburg to pay high rates for water. And then when they can't pay, they cut off their water supply. So they were cutting off tens of thousands of people in um, South Africa who couldn't pay, which led to social unrest. So in South Africa, people were pulling out their water meters and and going into the streets. I mean, the, the criticism is why force other countries, why take away the democratic power of other countries? Why not just give them a loan and let them develop how they feel is best? So they're imposing these um, rules on poor countries that make profits for European and American corporations, basically. And and handing over water supplies is one way that that happens. They'll say that, well, those countries don't have the technology and don't have the money to do it on their own. And, um, you know, to some extent that might be true, but there's ways to do, I mean, technology transfers, there's ways to, you know, allow the people there to make the decisions about how they want to run their government rather than imposing foreign corporations on from the outside. Is this something that the World Bank and the IMF have acknowledged was a policy mistake? No, no. Um, and, you know, I would love to see that. They, they do talk about reform in the sense that they're losing uh, legitimacy because the rest of the world knows this, even though, you know, they don't admit it. And people have been complaining about the IMF since the 1970s in Latin America. But um, they're, they talk about reform, but only because they're worried that they're losing what they call legitimacy, which means they aren't, an, they aren't able to attract enough money anymore to keep running because they have competitors emerging now. The the biggest one is the BRICS Bank, which is um, from Brazil and Russia and China and India. And they are setting up this bank because they don't like the way the IMF operates. And so they're being pushed a little bit to at least allow more representation from poorer countries in their governing body. But Right now, they've always had, um, you know, one organization has a, the president is a European, the other one, the president is the, is an American. So that's one thing they need to change is like open it up to other countries, give them more voting power, because within those institutions themselves, it's all, it's controlled by money. It's not a democratic process. It's like whoever uh, gives the most money gets the most votes. And so the U.S. tends to control what happens there or Europe. 
You, um, I mean, in your book, you really, you detail going through uh, the different countries that you saw and you were really on the ground and uh, coming away from all of this and, and done, doing the research that you did, I, I, are you positive? Uh, you, you mean my attitude? Yeah. I mean, is, no, are you, where, how, <laughs> how do you How do you view things at the moment? Uh, I think the scariest thing for me was talking to climate change scientists and seeing how pessimistic they were because these are the people who knew what was going on. And I thought, wow, if they're scared, I really should be. So the scariest thing for me was the seeing climate change. I mean, I could really see it. I could see the glaciers melting. I could, you know, I'd hear, hear about the droughts and see the coastal erosion everywhere I went and hear about species moving. And uh, so, you know, to see evidence of that was was frightening. And I think I was hopeful, where I became most hopeful was the people I met. I met the most amazing people who are really trying to make a difference and who have devoted their lives to making a difference. And I think um, it left me wanting to support these people and, you know, wanting to highlight the work that they've done, which I try to do in my book. So um, that's where I'm optimistic is in, you know, people, it, we can make the, people can make the change. Yeah, I, I really hope we, we do. Karen Piper, thank you very much. Thank you. It's great talking to you. Today, I've been chatting with Karen Piper. She is Professor of Postcolonial Studies in English and Adjunct Professor in Geography at the University of Missouri. My name is Craig Barfoot, and uh, thanks for listening to our conversation. Ciao.